Hello and welcome to Mouthwash TBD's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD and founder of Emerging Technology Advisory, here forth. My guest joining me today is none other than Paul Wickers, CEO of social gifting platform Hug. That's Hug with three Gs. Paul and I talked about the changing role of gifting and office perks, but more than that, he gives a candid look at what it's like running a startup before and during a pandemic. It's sobering stuff from a genuinely nice guy. Enjoy the show and find out more about Hug over at hug.me. Paul Wickers is a genuinely nice guy who, along with his sister, set up a company called Hug in 2015. They're the digital gifting platform that enables companies to delight their customers and reward their teams. But it wasn't always as you see it today, far, far from it, in fact. Uh, we're going to talk about that a bit later. Forbes named Hug a one-to-watch startup, and the team are pushing new boundaries after a turbulent year. Tur- uh, Paul likes his numbers, starting his career with 14 years funding M&A transition- transactions in structured finance teams of RBS and Santander tiny banks. Uh, but that's all history now. He and the team are busy changing the future of the workplace and customer incentives. Paul, welcome to Mouthwash. Congrats, you're made the first cohort. How did they treat you? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul. And thank you for having me on as well. I'm very, um, very flattered that you asked me. Ah, always, always. Um, Right, well, this should be fun. Mouthwash isn't just me and Paul Gass in a way, though. Uh, I want to hear from you. Please use the hashtag Mouthwash Show. So if you've got any questions, please put them in a tweet, and I will be looking at that uh, surreptitiously while concentrating furiously uh, all the way through the show. Um, However, if we don't get to them, don't, don't cry. Paul will probably go through them and answer them as well. So we don't mess around here on Mouthwash. Right. um, Okay, Paul, let's start. Um, What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Uh, The first thing I thought of this morning when I woke up this morning was immediately going back to bed because my smallest child had decided to let me have only three hours of sleep last night. And that's 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 the truth. Now, that doesn't happen every night. The normal thing I think about first is work. And uh, that's an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate side effect of being an entrepreneur. Oof. All right. Well, we'll talk about that work life balance a little bit later, I think. Um, Start with an easy one. Um, How's the last 12 months been for you? The last 12 months has been, I mean, you phrased it beautifully there by saying it's been turbulent. I mean, the reality is that we, we, we 12 months ago, we were 100% revenue, negatively revenue affected by COVID. And now we've turned it into a huge upside opportunity for us. Um, and uh, that journey has been stressful, joyful, horrific, wonderful, all at the same time. Couldn't have done it without a, br- a great team. And I'd love to talk a bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. We're going to come on to the team. Um, that let's let's stick with you for a second because um, obviously you're the star of the show. Um, you have an interesting adult life, obviously. But what was young Paul like? I'm envisioning a tear away, but is that true or false? No, I, it's not actually true. I was quite a good boy. So if you ask my mum that question, she would say I was very well behaved, and she always got really good school reports from me. And um, and the reality was, I was I was I was very sporty at school. Um, in fact, I was. No, I won't say that. I was sporty at school. I, I played a number of sports. I was in the school teams and county teams and county champion this, that and the other and all that sort of stuff. And and I think that really just set me up to a life of being able to just concentrate on getting, you know, decent enough at something to make some sort of thing of myself. Um, but I was also very, very studious. But the reason I was studious was because I wanted to be an airline pilot. I wanted to be an airline pilot so badly that my entire walls were just plastered in flight deck posters. 
I played flight simulators when I wasn't running around and playing football. And that was all I wanted to do. But I, I kind of always knew that my eyesight wouldn't be good enough. And in the end, when I finally went to get my eye test in, uh, in at the age of 17, in order to, to, to go forward and try and get a, a you know, be, be a pilot professionally, it turned out I could barely even pass the test to fly myself and my dog, let alone fly passengers in an airliner. So um, I had to make a very quick, you know, my first pivot was pivot at 17, trying to work out what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, at that point, I really didn't know. So I went and went and did the whole university thing like everybody else did. Um, but yeah, young me was studious, really goal orientated, but that goal was ripped away at me at 17. I had to rethink life from there. Ah, interesting. That gives me a sort of hint as to like your how you deal with adversity because you deal with it much better than most. But and this is no judgment to you or any finance folks listening. You don't seem like the type, but you spent fourteen years in finance. How did you get into finance? Well, that was that was the the starting point for that was be, because I couldn't be a pilot. I had to think pretty quickly on my on my uh, life plan. And, and I went off and did a, a more generic degree, a, a management degree, but I, I happened to be uh, fortunate enough to go to one of the three five-star management schools at the time. So I got a really good business education from Lancaster University Management School um, with some, some period of that abroad as well. But I, uh, and then it was during that course that it was very elite. So I was on this European management course. It was incredibly elitist. And it was like a four-year exchange where you came out with two degrees, but it was only a quarter British, quarter German, quarter French, and quarter Spanish. And you went to one of those other universities according to what your second language was. Uh, but it was incredibly elite. And what I found was I was, you know, boy from Lancashire at university, um, you know, enjoying life. But suddenly I was just, most of the people in my class had parents who were on the board of FTSE 100 equivalent companies in there. Like I, it was just not something I was used to. So mm. I suddenly got exposed to kind of big, big business and so on and so forth. And the modules I liked the most were all financial, statistical, economics. They were the ones I enjoyed the most. I, I struggled like crazy with anything to do with marketing and so on and so forth. So I, uh, that's how I ended up in the, in the finance world. I, initially, I wanted to be a trader. I actually did, I actually did a stint um, during my graduate scheme, doing uh, doing some some forex work, and it was just dull as dishwater. So I ended up working in the mergers and acquisitions world, and and I absolutely loved it, loved it. So I actually still miss it. Is the reality? Oh, I was going to ask. That was that's quite interesting. Um, all right, before we chat about Hug and how you're doing things differently over there with gifting and everything, uh, give us an idea of the market that you're in. How big is it? Is it growing? What what's the what's the skinny right now? Yeah, it is. So it is. It's, it's growing now. Gift. Most people think about gifting as being something that you do for your friends and family, and and that's of, of course true. But there's an there's an equal equally sized gifting market that is also in the business world. It's just got a different name. So in the HR world, it's called reward and recognition, uh, or it's a component of reward and recognition. In the customer experience world, it's 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 called an incentive or a loyalty point or uh, an activation reward uh, 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 an inducement there's lots of different words for it corporate gifting people will be very familiar with and the reality is that the, the market is about half b2b half b2c and it's approximate it's somewhere in the region of 600 billion to a trillion globally so it's massive 
Um, and about half of that is in the US because they're heavy proponents of gifting. It's about half of that, about 250 million consumer, 250, sorry, billion, 250 billion corporate gifting in the US. All right, the big one. Tell me in your own words what Hug was uh, and is now before we talk about how it came to be that way. Well, actually, Hug has always been the same thing. We're just in different phases of it. So it's always been a, a gifting platform forming, creating the software and the platform that brings gifting into the digital age. So we're crafting a future where you can make gifting incredibly logistically simple as if it were just like sending a message to somebody in a, in a messaging platform, but where none of the thoughtfulness is taken out of it. So we're really careful to marry the uh, you know, great UX and great user interfaces and, and very simple to use and quick to use zero logistics gifting option for businesses and for, and for consumers ultimately when we come back to it. But with uh, a, a thoughtfulness about the core psychology that makes gifting uh, a kind of centuries old uh, human activity. Mm. What we were, well, and what you're driving at there, what we were is we started out B2C. So we started out with a gifting app that enabled people to send gifts, little gifts that we call hugs to their friends and family. And what we have done is built a network up off the back of that that caused us to be able to start B2B gifting, which is actually a slightly harder problem to crack. So it's one that we are focused on right now. The reason we're focused on B2B is purely because we don't currently have the team size or finances to be able to do both. And it's ill-advised to try and do more things than the capacity of the business at any one point in time. So it's only at this moment in time that we're focused on B2B uh, is, is a function of the stage that we're at as a business. Mm. I, th I think that's smart. Um, I think it's fair to say that March was a nightmare for you. Um, overnight, 1,300 collection points closed uh, and you know rendering people not able to get stuff. Um, that would have been it for you and the team, but it wasn't. Um, no. For many, if they were put in that. So what did the strategy day around that look like? Uh, um, it, it, it was it was interesting. So uh, just to put a bit of context there, we, we there are different types of gifts. There are there are gifts that a person goes to redeem somewhere. Like uh, if I gave you the gift of a, a, a dinner at a restaurant, you would of course have to consume that at the restaurant. But if I give you a gift of a candle, that c of course can be sent to your home. Now we had you know back to focus. The focus actually had killed us uh, initially, or would have killed us, which was everything that we sold at the inception point of COVID coming to the UK shores was something that you would go and collect in a physical location. And suddenly that was just the worst possible place to be. So we were effectively a hospitality business going into COVID because everything we sold was in the hospitality space or the uh, kind of cinemas and theatre space. As a result of that, all every single one of the 1,300 places where you a person can collect one of our products was closed over a two-day period and that was why we were 100% revenue affected. Effectively everything we had to sell was taken off of our shelves overnight. So what did we do? <laughs> now the other bit that uh, I'm quite happy to disclose here was that we were also at that point um, extending our last funding round uh, with some external investors. So some external investors were at the point of documentation at that stage 
And of course, they had a mountain of problems in their own portfolios to deal with. And therefore, a funding round that we had expected to top up our coffers was also pulled from under us in that same week. So that week was not just about losing all of our revenue. It was also about losing our potentially losing all of our future because it left us very, very short in in, in cash terms. So this is what we did. We initially had to take the very difficult decision of finding some ways to cut cost. Now, the easy bits of that, the easy parts of that were we had two offices at the time on short leases and we were able to serve notice on those. That was a very simple thing to do. That unfortunately for the office, the commercial property space has been what most people did where they could. The second part though, unfortunately involved people. And uh, now this, the story ended, ended safely for people, but initially what we had to do was approximately half of the company uh, had to, were initially made redundant. And that was an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do in business. It's the hardest thing I've currently encountered in business is to make, make people redundant. But that's what we had to do. And then of the other half of the team who were remaining, uh, there were uh, some individuals who were going to have to be homeschooling and consequently could take a reduction in hours and volunteered to do so. Very grateful that they did that. Um, and I cut my own salary, which I, I couldn't afford to do, but of course I had to do it. Um, now, the combination of all of those measures meant that we actually were able to remove approximately 70% of the cost out of our business, which gave us still not very long, actually, but it gave us long enough to figure out what to do next. Now, at the same time in that same week, one of our colleagues happened to go to dinner with his brother and his brother worked in a school and his brother talked to him that night about the fact that he'd spent all day that day running around supermarkets trying to find gift cards, supermarket grocery gift cards to buy to give to parents at the school. And the reason for this was that the schools had this impending closure coming down uh, the pipes at the end of that week. And it turns out that there are about, at that stage, there were about 1.7 million children in the UK who are, who are the beneficiaries of a state-funded uh, free school meal every single day. And that effectively means that caterers come in at the, at the, at the uh, Crown's expense and those children get a wonderful nutritious meal. You'll remember that years and years ago, Jamie Oliver was instrumental in making those meals also healthy, not turkey twizzlers. Now that, that program for a alarmingly high proportion of those 1.7 million children is actually their main source of nutrition and their only source of hot food. It's really awful in the Western world that we have this, but it, it's something that just came to light. And so people in schools were panicking that when you close schools for those children, it could mean some degree of hunger or starvation. And therefore, the only things they could think of doing in the absence of being able to keep the schools open to cater for those kids was to give supermarket vouchers to those parents. Now, what we were able to observe as part of that was schools who don't have any money anyway, they were just raiding whatever money they had in order to give money to those parents. In fact, we spoke to one school who had the choice between payroll and 
funding vouchers for the parents and they funded the vouchers for the parents of course because that's what schools do now what we did then we, we realized the day after when we were talking about this well we were like well we've got a platform here that is is normally used to let businesses send lots of things to staff or customers but actually you can replace those gifts with supermarket gift vouchers and you can be doing that you can be undertaking that activity at scale and making it a hell of a lot easier for those schools so within a couple of days we were able to get all of the supermarkets on board and replace effectively replace our inventory using some gift card api integrations that we'd already had we just kind of dusted them off we were able to start providing that for schools but we realized when we shipped it that all of the tone of voice was completely wrong in our product so our tone of voice might have been hey wonderful you've received a gift which is absolutely fine if it's your company sending you something as an employee, but it's absolutely not fine if it's a school sending it to you effectively because you have no money. So we then spent a further five days changing all of the tone of voice in the product, and we were able to ship this uh, product, waive all of our fees, ship all this, ship this product, and start serving schools within about a week of starting all of this. Now, what that led to was ultimately a few days later there was actually a massive government scheme put in place because the government had for four weeks prior been building up a national system because they knew that this this impending problem was coming down the tracks so credit to them i know they've been bashed for a lot of things but the government did think about that in advance and it did start working on it in advance now that scheme was then launched and we pushed all of our clients over to that and that was job done and it was wonderful really humbling to be able to help in that interim period but what it also did was, and tell me if I need to take a breath here, Paul, and just interject if there's anything anything that you want to add or ask here. But what that also did was we, we very publicly, uh, we were seen to have done this. And so somebody at the British Red Cross got in touch with us and they said, OK, well, here's what we're doing for COVID response. We have potentially up to 100,000 volunteers, including all of our relief volunteers up and down the country. They're primed and ready to go out shopping for people who can't leave and can't get a supermarket gift, uh, a supermarket delivery slot. Is it possible for you to create a scheme where somebody who's at home could set a shopping list and pay for it and somehow use your grocery voucher system to, to have a secure method of paying for that and passing it to a, uh, to a, to a driver who would go out and, and collect it? And uh, so two of us put our heads together and using the tools that we had, we were actually able to ship that from start to finish in 12 hours. And I would describe that day as being the most uh, productive working day of my entire life because I spent 12 hours in a flow state with a colleague just writing a system that would make all of that happen. Now, so we got this working demo out and, and long story short, one week later, we ended up signing the partnership with the British Red Cross. And what that led to was our existing investors putting their hands in their pockets and they said, look, fair play to what the, what the company's done. You were so badly affected there. But the way that you've responded to that was wonderful. Here's what, what amounted to about 18 months of runway in cash. Now, what that enabled us to do, go on, Paul. I was just going to say, do you need water at the moment? Are you all right? <laughs> well, true, true. a few questions that I was going to ask. So that, that's yeah, sorry, Paul. Well, I've told this story a few times now, but I've not told it. I've not told it um, 
you know to a, what feels like an ether this is quite a strange experience talking to people now i, I don't need it's a water little bit cause... therapy it's a little bit front room but also you, you should be telling this story on stage because i think founders and uh, startup people need to hear it more um yes it's uh it's been, it's been an interesting one okay well so, so yeah I, I have i have a glass of water with me it's got some hops in it and they've all um, fermented so it's <laughs> tastes like beer Excellent, um, excellent. Yeah. Let's dwell on the investors a bit for a second. Obviously, yeah. yours are great and that sort of stuff. But a lot of people have gone through hardships um, during the sort of pandemic and that sort of stuff. Uh, you've obviously yeah. got great relationships with yours and they're, they're, they've got good vision to see what you're working on and what you've created and that sort of stuff. What advice or, or what um, issues have you seen other people sort of um, flail at at the moment? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Investors are, there's a great study by why, was it Y Combinator? There's a great study out there that uh, that asked investors what they think they provide to the companies they invest in. And it asked founders what they think the investors provide to them. And basically the answers are almost completely different. So uh, what what investors bring is cash, what, what investors, uh, if you ask investors what they bring, it's cash, connections, assistance, support, so on and so forth. If you ask founders what, what investors bring, it's uh, cash and hassle. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and there's, an, there's another great quote. Now, I'll give my experiences because they're not the same as this, but um, I, there's another great uh, kind of mantra by... Uh, uh, y Combinator, the world's greatest uh, accelerator, which is that an A-grade investor gives you money and gets out the way, and there's plenty of room below that. Mm. So, that, like the best investor is, is the one who recognizes that, that what they're giving to you is is cash. Now, what do, what do our invest? We've got loads of investors, and they're in all different kind of shapes. But we only have we only have two institutional investors, and the main the 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 lead investor that we have is Kindred Capital, um, and and our partner lead is is Russell Buckley. And when we were, the the measure of your backers is when things are going badly, and a really good investor for the stage, particularly for early stage companies, completely understands that most of the time things are going badly, and it's an exception when things are going well and that they shouldn't panic and that they uh, are empathetic to the situation you're in and constructive when you're in it. Mm. Now, so I have to say, I have to say that there was the way that uh, Kindred rallied around all of its founders, it, it almost felt like we'd be like, even though it was, a, it was a so far once in most people's lifetimes pandemic, they seemed to just treat it like another down cycle and were able to just give us some, 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 a few words of wisdom that really set you up for it. And, you know, one of the biggest ones was assume that this is two years. And this was at the point where everyone was saying, oh, this will be gone in four weeks, six weeks. Um, but they said, assume it's two years. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, that's bloody accurate. So, you know, kudos to them for that. So make sure you raise more money than that. Um, assume the capital markets won't come back, 
assume your customers won't come back. Marketing spend goes first and gets reinstated last. So if you sell into marketing budgets, blah, 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 blah. And it was really insightful, really helpful, and nobody panicked. Mm. So oh, I, yeah, they kept, they really kept us afloat. Now there was also a sliding doors moment before that, because I think it really helped that we, we pivoted and done so on and so forth. And the red cross thing was big, like blue ribbon thing that we'd done. But I, I actually, what happened was with the, with the red cross thing, the, the person got in touch by a, seems like an unusual route, but the person initially got in touch with us via social media. I think it was a Twitter DM or something. It's just, it's just interesting, isn't it? Where, where some of these leads come from. And, um, I actually got back to the person and two, two, three days later, even though it sounded urgent, we just hadn't heard back. And then one of my colleagues, Olivia noticed that I'd completely typoed their email address. So if I hadn't, if she hadn't spotted that I'd typoed that email address, we probably wouldn't have done the red cross thing. And it's possible we wouldn't have raised money and we would have died. There's this wow. little ridiculous sliding doors moments in your life. When you look back and you think that could have just gone completely differently, mm. but that's why you surround yourself with people to pick up the pieces that you, that you start dropping on the floor. Exactly. And that's your Ted talk. And you can thank Olivia for it. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> I am not doing one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia's going to literally write that at the top of her list there. Um, you're profitable now, which I think is testament to the product and the team, as you've just mentioned, and you are looking yeah. for funding. Talk a bit about where you're heading next. And um, yeah. should smart people know smart folks who want to invest what they should do? Yeah, so so we're profitable. And, and that's a ridiculous um, thing to say. Uh, in the tech world, because uh, whilst to most people that sounds like a good thing, in the tech world, to VCs, that's like kryptonite. Um, profitable means that you're not imaginative enough to know how to spend your money and, and, and be loss making, because profitable means you're moving a bit too slowly. But we've become profitable recently um, via the careful process of getting to product market fit. And having gone from seed stage and through product market fit, we've, we've done the bit that kills most businesses. Um, and now we're thinking about how we can grow a lot quicker. Now we're not gonna, we're not planning to stay profitable. We're planning to burn through that because it's the, the most efficient thing that we can do. And there are tons of things that we can do uh, more quickly if we can raise capital. So that's why we're simultaneously profitable and, and thinking about raising capital again um, this year. Um, now there's always a right and a wrong timing to raise money. Um, it's easier to raise money when you don't need it. And it's almost impossible to raise money when you do need it, which is really counterintuitive. Um, so I think we'll, we'll probably hit the button um, on it in, in the summer at some point. But what we want to do is we're, we are building the future of gifting. But one of the things about gifting is that it's a, it's a, it's a, form of communication between two people or a business and a person and in order to make it incredibly frictionless you need to be able to automate it so there's a huge amount of development work that we need to do in order to connect it effectively into the communications infrastructure of the world and that's the plan now, it's a really big plan and it's one that that's going to take you know the more capital we have the quicker we can build it, but there's too much capital and you can't deploy it. So there's this yeah. kind of inflection point that we need to hit. But I, what we'll be looking for is, is great investors who understand some, who understand B2B SaaS, but actually get more jazzed about understanding a SaaS enabled marketplace, new business models that are taking transaction 
margin rather than optimizing for the SaaS. Yeah. And it, it's going to take a visionary Silicon Valley Silicon Valley mindset type investor, which doesn't mean to say they need to be in San Francisco. It just means it just means they need to have that mindset, which is not prevalent in all European VC. Yeah. Um, but that's the sort of VC we're looking for. We're looking for someone who can help us with the, you know, we have, we, we need to hit on e-commerce psychology and UX UI. We need to hit on B2B SaaS pricing and go to market. We need to hit on API set, like we need to hit on everything, API sales businesses that are creating infrastructure platform as a service, like every, every single, you know, acronym bingo uh, <laughs> under the sun we need to find, but we really need to find it just in a great VC is really supportive. Brilliant. Um, and, so, uh, yeah. and probably best to uh, email Olivia, right? Cause uh, you're not so hot on the emails. <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm actually rubbish at email. Um, I even invested in Superhuman, and it's just made me super weak. Um, it just, all it means now is I'm, I'm paying thirty dollars a month to be equally terrible at email. Um, oh my God, Superhuman! Yeah. Where to where to begin on that email service? Right. Um, let's go up. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go up high for a second. Talk about um, Meta stuff, all right? So. Um, Gifting and perks in general used to be the gym memberships and other benefits, um, but they weren't really benefits. They used to be like lists of stuff you never use, 20% off this and all that sort of stuff. How's the pandemic reshaped the industry, do you think? Um, I don't think the pandemic's reshaped the industry completely. I think the pandemic's accelerated the industry, actually because it's moved us onto different comms tools more than anything. So you're, you're right. So, so perks used to, per, perks unfortunately is, but it's just become commoditized. Um, and, and that is to say, when it comes to perks, it's become something that is, is expected and undifferentiated between most large businesses. So like you expect to be paid a salary and you expect to have a pension even prior to the pension legislation that caused it to be legal, legally required, you expected to have a pension and you expected to have a, uh, sal you expect to have a salary in a corporate at a certain level, you expect to have a car scheme and all that sort of stuff. Now, when something is expected, it's no longer valued. It's, uh, it, it hits on, if anyone has read Hooked, there is a concept described in Hooked, the Near IL book. There's a concept described in that around variable reward. And effectively, it's, it's the part of human psychology that would make a fruit machine boring if you won the jackpot every time. The anticipation of a reward is the peak of your uh, dopamine hit in your brain and the reward itself if it's the same or expected is no longer impactful so in the same way that uh, if you move from one business to another to another and you get the same perks every time because they always give you access to a relatively vanilla not vanilla they're fairly undifferentiated perks platform it doesn't differentiate anybody when everybody's got it the other element is that when you're given access to one of those platforms, it's wonderful, but you only get given that access once. And what that means is that really the business only has one touch point with you. It gives you access to something someday and you don't necessarily value it afterwards because you're not connecting it as a benefit later on or valuing it as a benefit later on because you're simply using it, but you're only ever given it once. So the way we think about life and the way the reason why we sell into this this market is that our our customers who are in the HR and internal comm space understand that by using gifting as part of your armory, 
for engagement. You're able to create little moments that mean something to you. So it might be because of it, it might be um, you hit a milestone today and you send a gift out to everybody as a way of celebrating it collectively, which prompts conversation and so on and so forth. Or you or somebody has done something wonderful and somebody else nominated them for something and consequently they were able to deliver it to them that day. Now, if you can deliver it digitally, even though the physical item doesn't arrive until a day to three days later, actually the impact is immediate. So when something happens, there's about 24 hours of adrenaline associated with that action. And if you can actually hit somebody with the reward inside of that time frame, then great, but can't do that if you deliver something to somebody. And you can't do it if you've given, you can't say like, hey, great, you did this. Here's a reminder that you've got to log into this benefits platform over here. That just doesn't really work. So all of those benefits platforms and perk platforms, they've added something into them that creates this inherent variability and this variable reward. And fundamentally, it's all boiling down to how do you let everybody inside of a business have little budgets to reward everybody else? It's often done with stars and badges and kudos and thumbs up and pats on the back. And, and they're great. They all work. In fact, the best perk you can give to someone is just saying thank you to them. Yeah. You don't have to spend any money on it. You don't have to do anything with it. And that, our first advice to most companies is, uh, well, do this first. Get the fundamentals right. Put yeah. great people around them and good training programs and give them a happy environment first. Because um, you can send all the gifts off our platform in the world. It's just not going to work if you've not got the fundamentals right. That's interesting. But, it sort yeah. of reminds me of Glassdoor data that I was reading. Um, I think it was 60% of people um, place more emphasis on perks now. Um, why, why do you think that is? And it isn't, isn't money having, isn't having more money better? Like it gives them the sort of freedom to do it. A company's just being yeah. cheap? I wouldn't say, com no, I wouldn't say companies are being cheap. There's, there's so much information now. Um, I think it's about differentiation. Like, like uh, so, you, it's expected that you have a salary and it's expected that it's market matched. If you don't market match your salaries, you'll very quickly get found out. Unfortunately though, inside of companies, um, particularly large companies, people who stay in jobs for longer fall further and further adrift from their actual market value because market values tend to outstrip inflation and inflation tends to dictate what people's normal uh, without being, promoted, it tends to dictate what their normal salary accretes uh, as. But what 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 uh, is, is happening in this world is that people are, so salary is never the number one motivator of someone changing jobs or leaving one. It, it can be a demotivator but it's never, it's not such an intrinsic motivator of the way people think about where they work that it ranks top. Mm. It, it stops people from taking the job if they think it's underpaid and lack of pay can, can push people out of the door pretty quickly. But as long as you've got, as long as you're in the right ballpark, generally speaking, pay is just put to one side and it's okay, it's fine, it works, it's where it should be and that's sorted. The things that really differentiate places would be the perks but that doesn't mean gym membership i think perks more collectively in that sense means that i get to spend money on training on getting trained 
and I have a flexible way of spending that. Mm. Or uh, another, you know, another great perk is the people around me are wonderful and I learn loads when I'm at work. Or we have a, a weekly cadence, which is just for me plugging one of the things that we do. We have a weekly cadence of the end of the week, we down tools and we have a beer, glass of wine, non-alcoholic, whatever, on a call together. And we would replicate this in the pub if we could do, but we just have a conversation that's not necessarily work related to, to end the week. So we go into the weekend having decompressed from work and having some sort of human relationship with people. Now that ultimately is way more connecting than anything else that you could offer in a contract, pay, so on and so forth. And I think that's probably why. I think younger people, as our uh, as our workforces are becoming uh, younger or kind of more social media centric, they just value those relationships a lot more and they value those other things more. They value as well what the business stands for more. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I was um, speaking with um, Charlotte Middleton from the FT recently about perks, and it feels like you're ahead of the curve on most of the soft side of gifting. But is there any sort of um, plans to offer some newer things that people are thinking about now, things you're alluding to, uh, maybe because of the pandemic, like insurance or help with the broadband or anything like that? Well, because of the way that the just going back to the free school meals work. Now, the free school meals work has concluded with us finding an entirely new use for our platform, which is actually just incredibly serious. So we, we've ended up off the back of the free school meals work serving thousands of schools and dozens of local authorities. And we actually now distribute quite a lot of cash-like vouchering for local authorities in the form of hardship funds so there are loads of people on the fringes of society, unfortunately, who are maybe sliding towards universal credit or who are off the grid, like, a, for example, an asylum seeker that hasn't yet got to the point of being able to qualify for funding for universal credit that, that, that need to be picked up somehow before they slide into absolute poverty. And there are massive hardship funds out there, and we now distribute quite, you know, a fair chunk of that for local authorities. Now, in the course of that, what we basically realised is that we built a platform that enables really anything to be sent that can be redeemed by a recipient. So I wouldn't rule out at this stage anything. So mm. cash advances are coming, energy top-ups are coming, so on and so forth. It's not just gifts; it's it's functional things too. And and uh, you know, we speak to our users, and that's how we get feedback. If we get feedback that we have a category we're not covering, then we will cover it. That's interesting. I, I, I really do think, like you said, you, you've created a platform for something that turned into something else and now sort of feels like the building blocks for something even greater. I, I yep. love that you're working with people on the fringes of society and that sort of thing. I think that's nothing but that good good can do. Obviously, I think there's money elsewhere as well for, for you to make and that sort of thing. But I do love that you're staying sort of true to your values in that sort of sense as well. Um, I don't think I've ever asked you this. and I'm not sure if it was on the list of um, questions that I'm allowed to ask. But um, okay. how did you um, <laughs> determine what Hugs Perk package was? Um, that's a good question. So we, um, because the, the, the beauty of a startup is also the 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 scourge of it in some ways. Everything is a blank sheet of paper and you can develop it from scratch. Um, 
and then you can say that in two tones of voice. Everything's a piece of paper. You can develop it from scratch. That, that sounds exciting. But, you know, 10 times a day, it's like, oh, God, just another thing I've got to sort, you know, think about from scratch or Olivia will think that or Lewis will think that or Martin will think that, you know, another thing we've got to figure out how to do from scratch. Wouldn't it be nice to just have some precedence for some part of the day? Um, but when it came to perks packages, we just asked people what they thought would be valuable and frankly need to do that again because the people are different, a little bit different now and there's more of us. And we also uh, put in place some things that were just affordable and would be impactful without being too expensive. The reality is at seed stage, you can afford something at, at A series stage, you can afford something that's different. At B series stage, you start to become quite corporate. So we just tried to do some things that we thought were really meaningful. At, at the moment, we have a, uh, we, we do twice weekly yoga, which we fund. We do uh, drinks on a Friday, which we uh, often end up slightly funding by the fact that we will send out our drinks party packages to, in order to do it. Um, we will, if we ever go to the pub, the card goes behind the, the bar. If, and then most importantly, we used to have gym memberships if funded, if, but that was when gyms were properly open and we were in city centers. Um, but we also have a, a budget, a training budget, and people can spend that on themselves and they don't have to spend it making them better at their job. They can spend it making them happier in their lives. Mm -hmm. So if they want to learn guitar or how to do crochet or whatever that is, whatever they want to spend the money on, they can spend that on uh, themselves and, and get themselves trained. Mm. I think that's um, a nice point, actually, because a lot of people sort of have those budgets or, just, you know, that sort of thing. But most people feel almost guilty or sort of like they're not meant to be used. And that sort of stuff, certainly in larger organisations. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of gifting and perks are really to reward what the industry terms as discretionary effort using finger wiggles, that, that sort of going the extra mile or actually giving a shit about something or outwardly displaying, you know, thrillingness at something. Yeah. Um, how do you think businesses make sure that they have the right mix of benefits and perks? So it's not just do a good thing, get a cookie time, you know? Um, I, I think, I think what, what businesses need to do is treat their staff like they would treat their customers and treat, and, but this is presupposing that they know how to treat customers. So the, the general wisdom is that you should craft, you should craft the experience of working in a company like you would craft the product experience. The, the onboarding needs to be great. The ongoing, uh, the ongoing experience of it needs to be really great so that you get good retention. Um, ultimately, when you're hiring people, you want to get referrals. So you need to think about it like, like you would think about your product. Um, one of those things that you can do therefore is just ask what is relevant to people and when you're hiring people, you get what you often get is kind of questions about like what will be the best. Um, you know, the, the the last the last contract we put out, the 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 individual asked, uh, can they top up their pension? Now that that wouldn't that wouldn't have been asked by any of the other uh, any of the other individuals who might actually have asked how many days holiday, or they might have asked, do you do gym memberships, or is your office? Uh, does your office uh, vegan food like everything's different for people because people are very very individual 
So I think the best thing for I think the best thing to do is ask and, and provide as, as collectively flexible a perk as you as you possibly can. Mm. But the fundamentals are always the same. Pay them properly, give them great people to work with and train them. Yeah. That's it. I got, I got to ask then, how, how do companies fuck it up so badly? <laughs> mm, I think, I think what they do sometimes is somebody was telling me a story last night about a, a very large fintech in London that they work in that is known to be to known in the industry to be toxic. And I obviously won't name it because, well, Olivia would tell me off. A start yes, and she'd be don't like, do that. We don't need the sewage. <laughs> I'm obviously not going to name it, and I, I'm probably Paul. You know which one it is. So, um, and and because it was so, it was so toxic. That person was a really, really strong individual, and they left really, really quickly. Now, I think where businesses get it wrong is they they just mess their culture up fundamentally, um, but a lot of culture comes from the founding of the business. And so part of part of what we try to do is I, what I try to do is I, I'm not great at everything by any stretch. In fact, I'm not great at anything. I'm good at a few things and I'm terrible at most things. And what I but what I am is self aware. <laughs> so I try to make sure that our culture reflects what would be a happy place to work and doesn't necessarily reflect like big bank investment banking m a because that wouldn't work at all for tech so if if, a, if like a company's culture comes from the founders i think where they mess it up is where the the if that would lead to toxicity or, or not the right environment where that founder maybe just isn't self-aware enough about that to solve it somehow um, I'm not to say that I've, I've done that in any way, shape or form, but mm -hmm. I have some people around me who really make the place what it is. And it's not it's not me that does that. that that's a nice place. All right. Let, let's pause there for a sec. Let's do Desert Island Tweet for a sec. So um, Desert Island Tweet is a second in the show um, where we pick a tweet or two that's changed the guest's mind uh, or, or way or some way of thinking in some way. Um, Paul, I'm just going to pull it up. But um, tell us why this one. Hang on a sec. Let's just... Get it up as they say. Da, 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 da. Sorry, I closed it down stupidly. There we go. I'm, right, I'm so. excited to see how this works. There you go. It's up. Oh, it there it be is. There. That's cool. It's from Des Trainer and that sort of thing. So at Des Trainer. Um, yeah. It's easier to make people. Oh, let's start that again. It's easier to make things people want than it is to make people want things. And then a link. Tell us about the tweet. Why did you pick this one? So I'll start with the person. Des Trainer is one of the founders of Intercom. And one of the things I've had to do by starting a business in my sort of, you know, not out of a Harvard dorm, but after many years in a corporate life is I've had to completely relearn everything as if I was just kind of 18 again. And so there are just some people who I find incredibly insightful and he's one of them. And therefore, I'm I'm quite you know I'm quite grateful for really any content that he produces because it just helps me. Um, now, this one though is this is articulating the biggest lesson that 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 we've learned as a company, which is um, that fundamentally, people are way more savvy than they used to be 
about the difference between a great product and a great sales approach to an average product. So now the co consumers are so there's no there's no longer any information asymmetry in the market. It used to be that um, the person selling an item knew a lot more about the, than the person buying the item and the asymmetry was with the vendor and consequently the person would be able to buy something that wasn't fit for them. Now with the proliferation of the ability to research loads of things, the fact that loads of competing things get built really quickly and therefore it, in, it injects quality into the market generally and the fact that review sites exist and so on and so forth means there's no longer information asymmetry between a vendor and a purchaser. And now everything, everything comes down to the product and whether it solves a problem for that individual. Now, I, coming from a corporate world, selling effectively selling cash, selling large loans, I had no real proper deep understanding of this at all. And it was only when we got really to thinking about the core problems that we were solving last year, finally, that we managed to iterate ourselves towards product market fit. And if it wasn't for little things like this, little snippets like this, I, I, or rather, if I'd been more aware of little snippets like this, we would have had a much better outcome later. But I can't, like for anyone out there who's growing a business or developing a product, do not try and fight against the tsunami wave that is the reality of the market. The market will always win. You will never be able to turn it in the direction that you want. You need to turn your surfboard in the direction that it's going. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a whole lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.